This is the question that we're trying to deal with this morning in the beginning of our, of our question series. Uh, this question of why God seems to be so vindictive, seems to be so violent in the Old Testament, it, it kind of works in a way as a bit of an intersection between the Joshua series that we've been doing. If you've been here for that series, we've been working through the book of Joshua. And now we come to the question series because we've bumped up against this question a number of times in Joshua. And those of us who have been around the church for a while and read these stories for a while and grown up in Sunday school with these stories have become a bit desensitized to them. But the reality is, in the book of Joshua, you meet a God who leads Israel into a foreign land and then leads Israel in a systematic extermination of a whole range of people groups. Different tribes, different people groups, different nations, kings, armies, men, women, children, cattle, all exterminated, one after the other after the other. And we've often read these just as nice stories and seen them from the perspective of Israel, who are victorious and isn't this wonderful, these are God's chosen people. But when you sit around the other side of the table and have a look at it from the perspective of those who were annihilated, it becomes deeply problematic. It becomes a very, very difficult question for us. And, and even more so, I think, in view of events like 9-11, where you have a bunch of terrorist jihadists who commit this atrocity against innocent civilians, and we want to, as Christians, rightly condemn those actions. But then, if we're honest readers of the Old Testament, how is it that we can condemn that, but we're fine with this? We're okay with, with these uh, various communities, peoples, being utterly annihilated in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God. It's not comfortable, is it? It's not fun to think about, and, and I don't think we've thought hard enough about it. We just tend to gloss. So let me read you a couple of scriptures just to set this up and make us all squirm together, because I think the best thing you can do in these situations is confront the question head on. There's no point shirking it. There's no point pretending it's not there. So let's just look at a couple of scriptures that will uh, bring home and sharpen up the issue that we're looking at here. Uh, one that we looked at last week when, when jo uh, the Israelites are taking Jericho, Joshua 6.21. You don't have to turn to these. They'll be on the screen. Joshua 6.21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Not even the donkeys got spared there. Then over to chapter 7, uh, verse 22. Uh, Sorry, verse 24, you have Achan's sin, Joshua together with all Israel took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bars, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent even, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua says, why have you brought this trouble on us? Then all Israel stoned him. After they'd stoned him, they burned uh, all of his possessions. This is an Israelite uh, who him and his family are totally annihilated. Uh, then you get to chapter 8, and you have the city of Ai, verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. So you start to see the problem here. Yes? Uh, here's one that is particularly difficult, I think and maybe the most problematic scripture in this whole regard, in Deuteronomy 7, this is actually God talking to the Israelites about what He wants them to do. Um, Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, 
and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gagashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Ouch. Show them no mercy. This is exactly why a lot of people close the Bible, put it away, give up the fight, not interested. Not in a God like that. Not in a God who does this kind of thing. Not in a God who commands other people to do this kind of thing. And it leads a lot of people to abandon faith and abandon God. Let me read a quote to you from uh, Richard Dawkins, maybe the most visible, prominent atheist of our day. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. You notice the side reference there, fiction. Yeah, threw that in. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Oh, what a quote, eh? (laughs) He uses every adjective in the book for that one. And it sets up this question, how can we defend a faith who has at its center a God that does this. Why was God so violent in the Old Testament? Okay, well, let me, let me start by making one clarification here. The, the question itself, why was God so violent in the Old Testament, has in it an assumption that we need to deal with, first of all, which is that this is just an Old Testament issue. And one of the ways that people try and solve this, which is very misguided, is they play one testament off against the other. And they say, well, this was just the Old Testament, and this was just how God was in the Old Testament, but the New Testament really represents a fuller, uh, a more complete, and a truer picture of who God really is. So it's really about Jesus. It's about love. It's about grace. This was kind of the Old Testament. You know, it's in the Bible, but it's not as important, it's, it's not as instructive, it's a lesser form of revelation. Maybe people sometimes talk about a less evolved type of faith. Maybe the Israelites thought God was telling them to do this, but they were mistaken. Or maybe God himself was still growing and figuring out how to relate to people. Um, and he had some relationship issues. So what people do is then they go to the New Testament and they say, this is, re- you know, like, like the president did, uh, I'm more of a New Testament guy, really. Uh, the Old Testament, you know, it's there, but, but I'm, I'm a New Testament guy. Well, th- this really, it creates more problems than it solves. And, and what we need to realize up front is that the New Testament does not present a different God to the God of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have countless pictures of God's love and grace and compassion. It's a very selective reading of the Old Testament that just assumes the whole thing is a capricious, uh, vindictive God. Let me read you just a couple of verses to point this out. There's a lot of scriptures we could go to, but Exodus uh, 34, uh, 6, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
This is a picture that often we don't associate with the Old Testament. We think, well, God was just a bully then. But uh, you could go to Psalm 103. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't repay us as our sins deserve. He doesn't treat us according to our wickedness. But as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgression from us. We need to try and temper the picture of God that we can have very easily just from reading Joshua with these other scriptures that show us a God of love and grace and compassion. Think of the story of Jonah. Here is God sending a Jewish man to preach to a foreign people group who are completely disinterested in him. When they decide to repent and turn back to God, he forgives them. He takes them back, even though Jonah's not particularly happy about it. God brings, he saves them from destruction and he rescues them and he makes them into uh, a, a people that, that are much closer to him than they were before, even though Jonah's not, uh, he's not happy about that situation. The Old Testament gives us a picture of both God's justice and God's love. And conversely, when you get to the New Testament, we can assume that the New Testament is all just about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and the loving, the gracious, the mercy. But Jesus also talked a lot about hell. Jesus also talked a lot about judgment. More than any other New Testament writer, Jesus talks about Gehenna, this place of judgment, a lot. You get to the book of Revelation, and we'll look at this in a minute, and there are some pretty gory pictures there of the final battle against good and evil. There are some pretty gruesome images there of what God will do one day to finally unleash His justice on the world. And so it just doesn't work to try and drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, well, somehow that was just the Old Testament, you know, let's just cut that off and stick with the New Testament. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament give us a picture of God's love, and both the Old Testament and the New Testament give us a picture of God's justice and His judgment. There isn't inconsistency between the Old and New Testament. It's simply that in both you have various pictures to describe the various attributes of God. So, that's, a, that, that, that's a clarification, but it doesn't solve the problem. The, the question still stands, why, why did God ever do what He did in the book of Joshua? How did God ever justify these actions? Let me try and uh, come at this with an illustration. There's a lecturer in the States called R.C. Sproul, and uh, he was teaching a class a course one semester, had 250 students enrolled in it. On the first day of class, he explained to the students that there were, in the course of this class, going to be three different essays that were due. He gave them the dates, he gave them the brief for the essays, and he sent them away. The first deadline rolls around for the essay, and uh, 10 students have not completed the essay. 240, turn it in, fine, but 10 students turn up to class without this essay. And they've got all kinds of excuses. You know, we, 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 we just didn't have enough time. We've got all these other classes. We've got problems at home. We didn't get ourselves organized. And so R.C. Sproul uh, is lenient towards these students and says, okay, uh, I'm going to give you an extra few days to get your assignment handed in. So these students go away and complete the work. The next deadline rolls around for the second essay. This time, 50 students show up without the essay. 
I've been talking to the other 10 and they've figured out that actually it's not as important as we thought to get this assignment done on time. So 50 students now, and you know, they've got excuses, but they're not quite as worried about it because they know at the end of the day that lecturer sprawl is going to be pretty, pretty benevolent. And he is. He says to them, okay, look, you guys can have another few days. They get to the final essay that's due in and 90 students turn up with no essay. And, and this time, it's, there's, there's not even any excuses. This time it's like, well, yeah, you know, we just didn't get around to it. Uh, we had other things come up. We were out at the weekend and we just didn't get the assignment done. But don't worry about it. You know, we'll get it done in a few days. And at that point, R.C. Sproul stops the group and says, okay, put your hand up if you do not have your essay with you today. 90 students put their hands up. And he says, for you 90 students, it's an F. It's a fail. And at that point, there was a massive chorus of protest from the entire class, all shouting out one word to Professor Sproul, unfair. Unfair, right? Because in their minds, they should have got exactly what kind of treatment they'd had last time. They turned up knowing that, that he was going to be lenient, that he was going to be gracious, that he was going to be benevolent. <coughs> But then they come to class and find out that, in fact, on this occasion, he's not. And on this occasion, they're going to get what it is that they actually deserve. Now, you know where I'm going with this, right? It's a picture that starts to give us a way of thinking about this Canaanite conquest. So you and I look at this conquest. We look at God's commandment to annihilate these various people groups. And to us... It seems unfair, it seems horrific, it seems unjustified. But could it be that part of the reason we think this is because we have come to take God's leniency for granted? See, these students had experienced the professor's leniency just enough that they'd come to take it for granted. They'd experienced his mercy just enough that they'd come to expect it. They had experienced this benevolence just enough that they'd come to feel entitled to it and even to demand it to the point that when it wasn't exercised, they looked at him and said, that is unfair, when in fact what they were getting is what they deserved all along. <coughs> See, wind back for a minute the biblical story, right back to the beginning. God creates humanity. He places them in the context of relationship with him, peaceful relationship, trusting relationship, intimate relationship. The very first human beings break that bond. They break that trust and they assert their own autonomy. They assert their own independence. They pull away from God. They fracture the relationship. Now, what should have happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, pulled away from Him and turned their backs on Him? What should have, what should have happened? They should have died right then. He should have just... Wiped them all out. Would he have been justified in doing that? Absolutely. Humanity had turned their back on him. They'd estranged themselves from him. Was God not justified in simply saying, that's it, this human project is over? And he came pretty close, didn't he, in Genesis 6 with the flood. He just about wiped out the entire human race. But again, you see this leniency. And God spares Noah, and he spares Noah's family. And again, there's this streak of, of, of benevolence, the streak of mercy. God hasn't given up on us. He's going to stick with us. He's going to stay with us. Roll the story forward again to the time of Joshua and the Canaanites. 
the, the, the problem of sin wasn't solved with Noah. But Noah, again, and his family, the, the problem of sin contaminates all of humanity. Every individual is in this state of alienation from God. Every individual is, is absolutely shot through with sin and corruption. And part of the reason that we struggle to understand what's happening in the conquest is because we have failed to grasp the depravity of our own human nature. I know this isn't fun to talk about. It's a bit like talking about sin last week. That wasn't fun either. But this is the paradigm. I think it's the primary paradigm that you have to see this through. So you get to the time of the conquest. You have all of humanity pushing God away, turning their backs on God, and by the way, you can't get around this by simply saying, well, the Canaanites didn't know God. They didn't, have, they didn't have the law. God wasn't judging them based on whether they had the law or not. He was judging them based on whether they acknowledged Him insofar as they understood Him. And even if that meant just looking around at creation and acknowledging the fact there is a God, that's fine. God will take it. He only judges us according to what we know. For the Israelites, that was a lot more. They had the law. For these, po these foreign people groups, we can't simply say, well, you know, this is unjustified because they never had the opportunity. God was only holding them to account for what it was they could possibly have done to simply acknowledge His presence. And we know it's possible because you see people like Rahab doing it. And you see others who, who did acknowledge Yahweh, who did follow the Lord, who did turn to Him, but most did not. Most were stuck in this state of rebellion and wickedness and sinfulness, placing themselves, and this is true of all of us, placing ourselves in a position where we are, we've made ourselves God's enemies. We've made ourselves objects of His wrath. We've made ourselves objects of His righteous anger. And you might expect by this time in the biblical story for God to simply do what He did with Adam and Eve, to do what he did with Noah, to do what he had been doing countless times. Keep showing leniency and keep showing mercy and keep looking the other way and keep passing over the problem. But in one occasion, for one historical time period, God doesn't. Instead, what he does is he pulls back his hand of leniency and he allows those people groups to experience what it is we all deserve. Not just them, but all of us. See, we look at this situation, to us it seems horrifically unfair, it seems hard to get our minds around. And part of the problem is that we have come to take it for granted that we can just walk around freely on this earth, that we can have our lives, we can have our freedom, we can draw breath every day. We've forgotten that the very fact you and I are sitting here this morning sucking in oxygen is an act of God's grace. This is what we call common grace. It's extended to Christians, non-Christians, everybody. Just the simple fact that God continues to allow us to live is an act of His grace. It's not what we deserve. It's not what our lives have earned us. It's not really what, 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 we, what we deserve. And it's very easy to look at God in these situations and say, God, this, is, that this conquest is unjust. But you can imagine God turning around to us and saying, so it's justice you want, is it? What would that look like? Because justice is about deserving. Justice is about what I've earned. Justice is about getting what is due me. And what would that mean in my case? It would mean, to be honest, that I no longer live, that I cease to exist. The fact that he allows Israel to live is unbelievable because they deserved exactly what the Canaanites experienced. You see, we're all sustained by common grace, 
In fact, what it is that we all deserve is what the Canaanites experienced. So what you're seeing in the conquest, from one angle at least, is an instance of God simply allowing people to experience the fate that we all deserve. Holding back that hand of leniency that just keeps on extending benevolence and for a moment allowing us to see, I think so that we would grasp the seriousness of our own condition, allowing us to see a people group that, that experience God's rightful justice. Now, one objection that comes up at this point is what about the kids? What about the children, right? Because they surely didn't have the opportunity to uh, choose God, not choose God. A couple of things about this. It, it, I think it is the hardest part of the puzzle, the, the, the children. It's, it's gruesome to think about. It's very, very uncomfortable. But two points maybe to, to, to think about here. One is that don't overestimate the degree to which, don't underestimate the degree to which these children in these cultures were already suffering horrifically. Uh, you, you're not talking about cultures where you have rights for children. You're not talking about cultures where you have SIFs. You're not talking about cultures where you have child advocates. A lot of these cultures that subscribe to Baal worship and so on, they would employ infant sacrifices. They would have child slavery. They would have all kinds of brutal practices. So you don't want to romanticize what these children were already experiencing. They were already the result of incredible wickedness and incredible depravity within these cultures. And even though it is an incredibly uncomfortable thought that these children were killed, we also have to hold on to the sure and certain knowledge that the very next instant they woke up in the presence of the Lord Jesus. This is the eternal perspective that you have to bring that these children that, that were not yet at an age of being able to choose for themselves right and wrong, to follow God, not to follow God, of course they were immediately taken to heaven. They woke up in the presence of God where they are to this day. And so ultimately, God has acted in their best interests, in an ultimate sense. Now, I don't think that makes this a comfortable thing to talk about. I don't think that totally solves the problem, but I think it's a perspective that helps us understand a little bit about what's going on. These, these children didn't die and face some eternal destruction. We'll see them in heaven. The same as any child today that dies before they're at a stage of, of, of moral accountability, <coughs> taken straight to the presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ. So what is extraordinary, this is the picture I'm trying to paint, is not that God wipes out one people group. It's actually extraordinary. He doesn't wipe us all out. In view of human depravity, in view of God's justice, that's what ultimately we all deserve. But God spares Israel. God protects Israel and he says, you're going to be a people for my own possession. You are going to be a people that I will stay with, continue to exercise leniency to, so that Israel can be the context within which Jesus of Nazareth is ultimately born, who will change the picture entirely. And this is a second... Uh, lens through which we want to look at the conquest. You, you can't ultimately understand what happened in the book of Joshua at the conquest until you see what happened on the cross. Here's the way Chris Wright puts it. The cross is in fact the complete reversal of what happened at the conquest. Listen to this. Whereas at the conquest, God poured out his judgment on a wicked society who deserved it. At the cross, God bore on himself the judgment of God on human wickedness through the person of his own son who deserved it not one bit. See, this is the difference. At the conquest, you have a people that ultimately deserve the, the, the destruction that they encountered. At the cross, 
you have the one person who doesn't. The one truly sinless person. And yet he experiences a punishment far worse than anything the Canaanites got. It is that whatever preview of God's judgment you saw at the conquest, God unleashes the fullness of it on the cross. God unleashes the fullness of His judgment, the fullness of His justice, the fullness of His anger, in a sense, the fullness of His violence against the person of His own Son. And what the cross demonstrates to us is that the problem of sin needed a solution that was bigger than what happened at the conquest. What the conquest does for us is it highlights that sin is a deadly, deadly, serious issue. It's it's not going to work for God just to keep on passing over, glossing over, looking over, exercising leniency. The whole story is moving forward. It needs a a decisive solution. Sin needs to be put to death. This is what happened on the cross when the person of Jesus Christ took upon himself the full weight of God's judgment until the anger of God at sin was completely and fully spent. God spent his justice on his son at the cross until it was utterly finished. Jesus took our place so that we would not have to experience what it was the Canaanites went through because our fate where you and I ultimately deserve to end up is exactly where they ended up and worse. But what Jesus has done has spared us from that. What Jesus has done is made a new way possible. That's precisely why Jesus can walk around saying things like, love your enemies, like pray for those who persecute you, like those who live by the sword will die by the sword, like blessed other peacemakers. Some people have a hard time reconciling those statements with this God over here who destroys the Canaanites. But The point is that Jesus can say these things precisely because he has taken the full weight of God's judgment on himself. He said those things in the shadow of his own death. He said those things knowing that he would take on the judgment, the justice of God in order to open up a new way of living, a new way of being, a way characterized by nonviolence, by peacemaking, by love for one's enemies. This is the kingdom that God is bringing about through Jesus. It's possible precisely because of his death. Jesus has taken the weight of our sin. And now the kingdom of God that he spoke about, this utterly new way of being human, apart from violence, apart from animosity, apart from destruction, all of that has been made possible now through the cross. The kingdom of God is this new world that's opened up to us. It's a new way of living, a new way of being human with God in his kingdom. So we need to see the conquest firstly through the lens of, of God's justice and His judgment, understanding the depravity of humanity and understanding that God is ultimately just in His judgments because of human sin. We need to understand it in view of Jesus' life and death, the fact that He completed what the conquest started, that He has completely exhausted God's judgment. And therefore, those who are united with Him are now pursuing a new way. This is why, by the way, it is utterly unjustifiable. And it's, it's amazing people even claim it, but they do, that the Old Testament conquest is somehow a mandate for Christian violence today. That is, that is such a ridiculous misreading of the Scriptures. That this is, people take the conquest as normative. It's not. It is an isolated period of time. It is, it is a unique event orchestrated directly by God for His purposes, and all of that was fulfilled on the cross. That's why it doesn't continue. And that's why we are called to precisely the opposite, to be peacemakers, to pursue nonviolence, 
to love our enemies. You see how that works? We stand on the other side of the cross now, and we're called to pursue a different kingdom. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.